morning. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? How many of you are old enough to remember that ad on TV? <laughs> well, I didn't say who it was an ad for. I'd like to speak today about one of the reasons that those who call themselves Christians are so taken <clears throat> with Jesus Christ. Why they want to talk about him, why they sing about him, as we've just been doing, why they sing to him, and why they literally worship him. If you're not a Christian yourself, you're probably uncomfortable when you see these things. But there are very good reasons for it. And I'm going to talk about one of those today. I want to present to you Jesus Christ, the perfect King. If you are a Christian, then you will likely not hear anything new today, but I hope that these reflections will cause you to love and adore him more deeply and that you will understand more fully your role as one of the beloved subjects of the king. I hope that you will be emboldened to speak about him to those around you. I hope that you will be bursting to say, there is this man. The dominant form of government throughout history has been the monarchy. In a monarchy, the people are ruled by one person, usually invested with absolute authority. We'll call that person the king, although they've been called by many names in history, including queen, but we'll just use king generically for the monarch. That person may rise to the position of leader through being the best hunter or having the greatest wisdom or simply by brute force deposing the previous monarch, but usually kings are sons of kings. The 6,000-year-old tale of mankind is replete with stories about kings. In fact, much of history is written as the story of its kings. Kings have ruled small groups and large groups. They've been wise and they've been foolish. They've been profligate and they've been thrifty. They've been energetic and they've been careless. They've been loved and they've been hated. And today, democracy is spreading around the globe. In this country, in the U.S. of A., we rejected uh, government by a monarch about uh, 250 years ago because living under a poor monarch can be a terrible thing, giving rise to widespread feelings of helplessness. But in so doing, we have forgotten what a wonderful thing it is to live under a good king. So I'm going to begin 
with a section of the Bible usually read during the Christmas season. And that's in Isaiah chapter 9. Now you could turn to that. Uh, I have a number of scriptures I'll read today, and I've got them all printed out in my notes. And so I won't pause to give you a chance to look them all up. So you might be better just to listen to me read them, although you're more than welcome to look them up. But this one will be a good one to look up, Isaiah chapter 9. And I'm going to read from verse 2 through verse 7. I am reading from the uh, ESV, English Standard Version. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Our Father, we uh, come before you this morning as we think about your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his glorious attributes. We pray that you would touch our hearts again as we think about him and speak about him. In his name we pray, amen. To get the full impact of this little passage, this little section of scripture, we need to briefly review the context here. In the previous chapter, in chapter 8, Isaiah gave a really bleak prophecy of punishment by the Assyrians of the northern tribes. For example, in verses 5 through 8, he uses the metaphor of the destructive power of a flooding river. The Lord spoke to me again, he says, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over reason and the son of Ramalia. Therefore, behold, the land is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. 
and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Terrible vision of just all this terrible, the Syrians thought of as a flood of a river overflowing its banks. And at the end of chapter 8, Isaiah ends up with these verses. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuous, contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's a really depressing chapter if you read the whole thing. And it ends up in just this horrible, dark, gloomy, murky way with darkness at the end of it. So that's the context of the beautiful picture that comes out in chapter 9, where it turns out that, as with many of Isaiah's prophecies, and indeed many of the prophecies in the Old Testament, these judgments of gloom are followed by a promise of restoration and redemption and restoring. And that's what's happening in chapter 9. Verse 1 of chapter 9, which I didn't read, it says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In other words, the gloom will come to an end. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he's made, the, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And then he goes into verse 2, which we read, and it speaks about the light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. So what is this great light that he talks about? Well, what he's talking about here is a person, as becomes evident in the, the following verses. He's talking about not a movement or um, uh, a, a release from oppression by the Assyrians, uh, or anything like that, he's talking about a person, a specific person. And at the time, of course, Isaiah didn't know who that person was. He was prophesying as, as the Lord spoke his words through him. But today we know who that person was that he was talking about. Indeed, in, in John's gospel, remember how it starts out. It starts out by talking about the Lord Jesus Christ himself as the light of the world. That was the person that he was talking about. John says in chapter 1, verses, starting at verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today, I'd like to focus on verse 6. I'll read it again. This gives us a thorough description of the light, the person that it's talking about. For to us a child is born. That tells us that it's a person. 
To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So it was a real person. It was a son that was given. It was a gift. Isaiah 7.14 says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. And the sign, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew records the fulfillment of that prophecy in chapter 1, verse 18 of Matthew. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. I claim that that is actually that moment that's recorded in that verse is the greatest miracle that ever happened in the history of this universe. God himself became a little single cell in Mary's womb through the agency of the Holy Spirit. It seems completely impossible, but I believe it was true. And then it says he, he would have the government on his shoulders. That's where we get that he will be a king. And a king with a great sense of responsibility. The government will be on his shoulders. Now this wasn't true when the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world. He was the light of the world, but he wasn't the king with the government on his shoulders, was he? He, he lived a very humble life. So this points to the future. It looks to a future time when he will be a king. He will be a king. And then follows these five beautiful characteristics of a perfect king. This isn't all we can say about a perfect king. This isn't all we can say about the Lord Jesus. But it's cert there's certainly a lot caught up in that. I'm going to take up each one of these in turn, these five characteristics. And I hope that this will really warm our hearts about the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to think about how the Lord Jesus Christ lived out these characteristics when he was on earth and how he will live them out in the future. And these are two beautiful pictures of our, of our perfect king. Now, just a note before we go through the five, you might, uh, depending on your translation, have counted four. Some of you will have counted five, and some of you will have counted four. And the issue here is whether it's wonderful, comma, counselor, or wonderful counselor. And both of those will be in front of you on your page, um, depending on which translation you have. Um, and it's really a translation choice. Um, I'm going to go with the traditional old uh, uh, um, translation of that and take it as two words, wonderful, comma, counselor. So we're going to look at five aspects of this perfect king, wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And I hope that as I do so, if you are a Christian today, that you can imagine yourself speaking with someone you know who doesn't 
believe what you believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. And with your heart overflowing, say to that person, there is this man I want to tell you about. It says he was wonderful. What does that mean? Well, in the strictest sense, uh, when you looked at him, you were full of wonder. Here's one of those words like awesome that's been completely emptied of its meaning in the English language because we use it all the time about just about everything. That meal was wonderful. That pretzel was wonderful. That piece of dust that I just wiped off uh, my furniture was wonderful. We use it for anything, but in its original meaning, it's a very big word, just like awesome is um, and no longer is. It means full of wonder, amazement. The Lord Jesus Christ was wonderful. And I want to take it today to mean that he was delightful. So I like to imagine myself from time to time being one of the disciples. What was it like to be with the Lord Jesus Christ as he walked on the earth? And I think this is one of the feelings I would have had, that we would have had if we had walked with him. This feeling of wonder this feeling of um, the, the, the amazing Lord Jesus Christ, and we can't think of enough superlatives, that we just really enjoyed being around him and seeing what he did and hearing what he said. It was always new and fresh and, and perfect and glorious all of the time. Imagine that. Imagine a person like that. Like, nobody I know is like that. Even the greatest people I know say mundane things from time to time or just get boring or, or are maybe obnoxious or something like that. But the Lord Jesus Christ was wonderful. And he performed wonders too, didn't he? Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter and James and John were with him, and his glory was revealed to them, what did Peter want to do? He wanted to make a tent. Why, why did he want to make a tent? Well, I'm not exactly sure, but what I've always thought there was that he wanted to make a tent because it was so wonderful being there in the presence of the glorious Lord that he wanted it to go on. He wanted it to continue. He didn't want this to come to an end. And so he made a little tent and he said, I've made something for us here, Lord. You can stay in this tent. Because it was so wonderful to be with him. And you'll remember, of course, how deeply distraught his friends and, and uh, followers were when he was killed, when he was crucified on the cross. They were devastated. And one of the reasons for this was that the Lord was such a wonderful person. And he was gone from their lives. We've all experienced this when we're at a funeral of somebody that we really loved, that was a wonderful person in our lives. And they're gone, and we just feel this emptiness. We'll never know their presence again. And we'll make no more memories with them. It's a whole. And this was what the disciples felt. This person who was so good to be with was gone. So he was wonderful when he lived on the earth, and he'll be wonderful in the future. And uh, there are many scriptures to support this. Maybe the best one is 
Revelation chapter 5. I'm just going to read a few verses from it. I'd love to read the whole thing, but for the sake of time, I won't. But listen to this. Listen to this. Sometime in the future, this is going to happen. John has this vision. He says, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. I've said this before, but a myriad is 10,000. So a myriad of myriads is 100 million, 10,000 times 10,000. And it says that there's, it uses the plural. So it's probably at least a half a billion people. It's a lot of people around the throne. I turned and looked and wow, myriads of myriads of people. And they're all saying with a loud voice, every one of them, have you ever been in a stadium and, and singing with 50,000 people? Doug, you and I were once when we were at the... Um, yeah, you were too. It was the... Um, well, Billy Graham, that's a good example. What an experience that is. 50,000, that's only five myriad. Imagine myriads of myriads and all together, all of them are singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. The lamb referring to the Lord Jesus Christ who is right there in that vision to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He was wonderful. He was the center. He was the focus of attention of these half billion creatures. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Wow. So he was wonderful in life and he will be wonderful in the future. You know what? There is a man. There is this man I want to tell you about. It says he was counselor. I take by that the characteristic of being wise, a wise person. He knows how to deal with any situation. He's people-oriented. Think about uh, Solomon. People, it says in 1 Kings, came from around the world, including the Queen of Sheba, just to sit at his feet and listen to his wisdom. That's how I think of this. He's a counselor, and he's wise. And when he lived on the earth, everyone wanted to hear what he had to say. We read in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. This man was a counselor. And they would bring questions to him. They would ask him questions. And he answered every question. Sometimes with a question. Sometimes with a parable that left things uh, maybe a little bit obscure. They had to work out the answer. But he answered every question. He was a wise, wise man. And he understands people. He understands everything about the human experience. And that's what makes him a great counselor. It says in Hebrews 14 that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's a wise counselor because he knows 
to the very core of what it means to be a human being. He knows the human experience. He can address it perfectly in all cases. You have the words of eternal life, we read in John chapter 6. Peter says that Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's sort of the last person. You know, you go to somebody and you, you seek advice and it's good advice, but you want to go to someone else and get a second opinion, so you go to the next person and they give you some good advice. Maybe it's even better. And you maybe go to several other people. But then you go to this one person that knows the answer to your question. Definitively. And it's the last person you have to go to because they have the answer. That's the Lord. He's the counselor, the wise one. He knows all the answers perfectly. I like to think of the marriage supper of the Lamb. I like to think of the conversation that will be had. On that day, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Can you imagine the conversation there? learning the truth about so many things. Can you imagine eternity in heaven where all the questions that we have either become irrelevant because we don't care or we get them answered? I think I have a lot of questions I want to ask about math. And I think the Lord's going to answer them, but maybe I won't care once I get to heaven. But there will, any question I can ask, he can answer. He's the wise counselor. There is this man says he's mighty God. I like this idea of him being God. The Christian makes this incredible claim that no other religion to my knowledge makes that the Lord Jesus Christ was God himself, is God himself. And he's mighty. He's strong. He's a king that will rule with great power. But you notice that he never abuses that power. And that's the key to the whole reason that he's a perfect king. He's always the victor. No one can overcome him. No one can even stand against him. Because he's God himself. He will always win. He's mighty. How do we know about his power from his time on earth? Well, that's an easy one to answer because of the Signs that he did, the miracles. Day after day, he was doing things that no one else on earth could do or ever has been able to do. And if you read carefully his miracles, you'll see that he was very restrained in them. He was very understated. He could have done much more, but he did just enough. Every day, while he was here on earth. He was showing how mighty he was. And if we look in Revelation 19, we can get just a hint of what it will be like in the future when his full power is revealed. Revelation 19, verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, 
and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. White horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. There is this man. And then our fifth one, the everlasting father. I take this to mean that he has the characteristic of being caring. I should say here that this is, uh, we have to be careful not to say that this is equating the Son of God with God the Father. These are two different aspects of God. And it's not talking about God the Father here. It's talking about the Father-like characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ, the way he cares He loves his subjects. He always seeks their best. He thinks of ways to nurture them. Sometimes he disciplines them. It's necessary. He was like this with his disciples. You can see that if you you read through the Gospels with this thought in mind that he's father-like, that he's caring. You'll see it all through the Gospels the way he cares for all of those around him and nurtures them and brings them along and teaches them and equips them for life and what they need to do in life. And sometimes you'll see him rebuking, especially for lack of faith that happens and for other things as well. As for the future... We read this verse, this little passage earlier this morning. I can think of no better uh, description for the future, his future role as a king uh, better than these verses from John chapter 14, which so express so beautifully his care and concern for those he loves. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. There is this man. That was the fourth. Five, Prince of Peace. I love this idea of The Lord Jesus Christ being the Prince of Peace. After all these frightening things that we've read about him in the future. uh, Coming with uh, uh, an army of angels on white horses with his eyes like fire. And and coming for vengeance and so on. I love this idea of the Prince of Peace. It tells me that the Lord Jesus Christ is gentle. This talks about the gentleness 
of the Lord Jesus. His subjects live in peace. He gives, this king gives complete security to his people. They are on the side of the victor of every battle and they have security in their lives. Not the temporal security that we think of. Our lives are still fragile. We could get in a car accident on the way home and be killed. Not the kind of security that guarantees us a long life but the kind of security that guarantees us an eternal life. Jesus was like this. We see this right from the very beginning of the life. Think of the, his life. Think of the very gentle, quiet um, way in which he was born. So humble in a stable, quiet, gentle. In all of his ministry, he was gentle. He said, suffer the children to come unto me. I want the children to come. The children felt comfortable around him because he was a gentle man. We referred to him earlier as the Lamb of God. And uh, even though that image of the Lamb of God is meant to evoke the idea of sacrifice, it also has the idea of gentleness in it. He was a gentle lamb. He went to the cross gently. We think of the whole description of his trial and how, how he was treated so roughly, so poorly, and yet he was gentle through the whole thing. He was a man of peace. He was the prince of peace through that whole ordeal. And if you couple that with the fact that he's the mighty God and he's full of power, and you think about what he could have done to those people, it enhances even more the idea that he was the prince of peace. We read in Ephesians 2 that uh, he made peace. He brought the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. And in the future, these beautiful words from Revelation 21, just we love to, we love to think about this. We love to think about this aspect of the afterlife. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There is this man. In the words of uh, Dr. S.M. Lockridge, that's my king. Do you know him? It's such an appealing picture of a man. You can see why I want to tell you about him this morning. There's no one like him. Wouldn't it be wonderful to live under a king like this? Would you give up our broken, corrupt democracy in order to live under a king like that? Of course you would. Of course you would. 
you could get on with your life, knowing that you'd have peace, that you'd be well taken care of, that your king loved you personally, even though he was the king of all, that he cared for you, that he would give you peace in your life, that he was always there for wise counsel. When Samuel uh, brought forth uh, Saul as the first king of Israel, it says, do you see, he says to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king! Now they were disappointed eventually in Saul. In the uh, United Kingdom, they sing this uh, royal anthem. God save our gracious, well, they sing queen, I'm going to say king, which is what they sang before uh, the queen started her current reign. God save our gracious king, and this, by the way, is sung to the same tune as my country tis of thee, but I'm not going to sing. God save our gracious king, long live our noble king, God save the king. Send him victorious, happy and glorious, long to reign over us. God save the king. They're beautiful words, but unfortunately, there were lots of kings and queens in the UK that... uh, didn't deserve that song sung about them. But Christians have such a king. And he never, ever disappoints. It would be great to have a king like that. Wouldn't it be even more wonderful to personally know a man like that? If there was such a man here in Fanwood, living in a house here, it wouldn't take long before everyone in Fanwood was crowded around his door wanting to meet him. He would walk down the street and there would be crowds following him, trying to meet this wonderful man, this wise counselor, this caring person, this gentle person, this mighty person. Wouldn't it be wonderful? There is such a man. There is this man. As the old uh, Joseph Scriven hymn says, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. Again, Lockridge, that's my king. Do you know him? The Christian gospel at its core is not just a set of statements that you believe in. It's not an intellectual exercise. It's about a man. It's about this man. So much misunderstanding in our culture about the Christian gospel. People make fun of it, they mock it, they turn away from it. They even get angry when Jesus' name is brought up in conversation. 
You've all had that experience. But I want to tell you today, there is this man. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we address you at the end of this time together. And this is an acknowledgement that you are alive today. And all these beautiful things that we've read about you are still true and will be true in a glorious, amazing way in the future. What a man you are. We acknowledge you as wonderful, as a counselor, as mighty God himself, as everlastingly father-like, as the Prince of Peace. We bow before you this morning. Amen.